From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's special anniversary episode, we celebrate the third birthday of this podcast. I'll share my thoughts on this incredible milestone and some of my favorite clips from the episodes of this past year. Hello, lovelies. Happy birthday to us. It is the third anniversary episode of the Be Impactful podcast. And wow, just legitimately wow. I mean, I started this show um, three years ago to uh, basically as an excuse to talk to people that I wanted to (laughs) and call it work, um, which has turned out to be a a good call. (laughs) I have certainly gotten to um, be able to talk to so many interesting people. And I've also... um, you know, my work has definitely benefited from the show a lot. Uh, we hit 100,000 downloads this year, which is huge. Um, there are 5,000 monthly listeners now on the show, which is, you know, growing every month. And it's just really fun to do. And it's really, really cool. And, you know, something about three years, I feel like I reflect on this every anniversary episode, and maybe it'll just become a theme that we revisit every year. Um, But when I originally started the podcast, I kind of specifically did not want to think of it as a Jewish show um, or as an Orthodox show. Um, I think that, um, yeah, I think that part of the reason why I didn't want to think of it that way is because I, when it comes to entertainment, in a lot of ways, I associated Jewish with bad, (laughs) you know, like we've all seen terrible parody songs where like a clearly like a song has been ripped off but the lyrics are changed and the new lyrics are like very emotionally uplifting but bad um and I didn't I and and I didn't want the podcast to be bad um and I actually I think it was in the first anniversary episode that like I apologized for not being able to get more like not Jewish guests and something that I heard back from you from my lovely listeners is that you enjoyed those stories. You know, I know that the majority, though not everyone listening to this show, um, is Jewish. Um, and I didn't, you know, you enjoyed having a Jewish podcast that wasn't bad (laughs) or, you know, like a, a Jewish podcast that kind of didn't have that, um, religious tilt, I guess you could say. So over the, you know, then I, you know, I've kind of leaned into it since then. I, I, I've leaned into it in a little bit of a weird way in that I don't, I definitely don't consider whether or not someone is Jewish when I want to have them on the show. But I also, I I don't shy away now from discussing issues that are specific to the community that are like really not interesting to anyone who isn't Jewish or sometimes even more specifically not Orthodox. And I'm glad that I've done that. I'm really, really glad that I've done that. I know that there have been people who have felt less alone discussing, you know, mental health or infertility or, um, you know, domestic abuse from specifically a orthodox angle. And that and and I'm I'm so honored that this show gets to fill this space. I actually think that this is something kind of funny that happened 
I want to say recently ish, probably like, I don't know, within like the last three months, uh, there's, there's a site called Chartable that is kind of like the Billboard 100 for podcasts. They, they rate podcasts. Um, and you'll, you'll sometimes see podcasts like post their spot on, um, like where, where they are on the charts. If you ever see someone posting like a podcast chart, chances are very high that it's from Chartable. It's like a third party thing. Um, and I saw a different podcast post where they were on this chartable chart and they were like fairly high um let's say just to be vague within like the top 15 to 20 and I was like oh I wonder where I am on this chartable chart I've never looked at it so I go and I look and I see that I'm not anywhere on it which and I was chartable is divided by is divided by categories so um this person was on like the Judaism chart and I see that I'm not anywhere on that chart. And I'm thinking that's weird because I know that I have more listeners than that person. Like I'm friendly with them. Um, you know, we, we had spoken about this. I just knew that I had more listeners than them. So I was like, Oh, I wonder why I'm not on this chartable chart. Turns out that you need to submit your podcast to be on these charts. I didn't know that you had to do that. So I had never submitted. So I go and I submit the show and I see that, um, I'm not showing up on the Judaism charts at all again. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I wonder why that's happening. And then I go into my podcast settings and I realize that because I haven't looked at these settings almost since I made the show. Um, and when I first started the show, I was so intent on it, like not being a Jewish podcast that I didn't even put Judaism as a category there. I had like entertainment and fashion and art and stuff like that as my categories. Um, so of course I wasn't going to be on the Judaism list because I hadn't, like I hadn't told the podcast gods that it was, you know, that it was Judaism affiliated. So I went to, um, so I, I went, you know, I went to my settings and I changed my settings around and I left fashion and beauty as my top category. And I changed the second category to Judaism. And then I see that I'm like really high on the fashion and beauty charts, but that I'm not showing anywhere at all on the Judaism charts. And I'm trying to like look around and see what would happen. And then I, discovered I found out through some intense googling that you can only be charting in one category at a time so I like you had to choose basically which category you wanted to be considered for and I had so like I had by putting it in the order that I put it I had prioritized fashion and beauty so I switched it I put Judaism first and then I put fashion and beauty second and then I waited a little while and I and like I did chart in the Judaism podcast I don't remember what at, at what level um and then like a week later I switched it back and I want to tell you why I switched it back and that was because I realized that making that switch was purely a vanity move it was purely for me to be like look at where I am on this chart with all of these other people that you've heard that you know that you've heard of and like look my show is right there with them um and I didn't I didn't like the idea that I had made it as you know, I had made that move as a vanity move. And also what I realized is that because I was charting so high in the fashion and beauty category in the United States and around the world, actually, um, because I was charting so high there, I was pretty much always in the top like 100 to 150. Um, then and it, like these things are changing all the time. But yeah, I was pretty much definitely always like in the top 150. Um, then um, cool guests were finding me. <laughs> you know, cool, you know, cool people who were, you know, who were doing fantastic things in the fashion and beauty space were, you know, like their PR people were finding me. And that is how I, you know, usually 
um, you know, when I have like a guest that seems a little bit random, it's probably because they came from a PR agency and I filter through a lot of those requests um, to not, you know, I'm not wasting your time. Um, but some of my best episodes, like I know that uh, this wasn't in the last year, but uh, about a year and a half ago, Kate Harvey was on the show and so many of you loved her story. And that's how she was able to find me. So that's what I did. <laughs> you know, I, I went back and I re- um, you know, rejiggered um, all of my settings. And yeah, you won't find me on the Judaism charts, but you will find me in the fashion and beauty space. And it's actually pretty cool to be, you know, among the top rated fashion and beauty podcasts in the United States. Um, and that's really fantastic. And and it's it's only doable because you are here. Something else that I noted, particularly while I was compiling um, this episode, which you'll hear about, you know, you'll we'll get to that soon. I noticed that this year of the orthodox people that i featured on the show there were a good chunk of people who did not grow up orthodox you know what we would call bali chuva and i found that really interesting and i've been reflecting a lot on why it is that like people that i find cool and are like doing cool things that recently so many of them just did not grow up orthodox and i think that it might be this is a armchair theory. I think it might be because in the Orthodox community, sometimes we can have really narrow views of what we should be or what we should be doing. And if you grow up outside of that community and then only later become a part of it, then you didn't like you didn't grow up with those views and you might already be settled in a career or might already have decided that you want to be a particular thing and so you know then you go and you do whatever it is um that's not to say that there aren't you know orthodox women who grew up orthodox who are doing fantastic things i kind of would like to think of myself in that category but i'm sure that you could think of many of ex uh, of many examples but it it got me thinking you know i wonder i wonder if that's a a bit of a part of it i wonder if if we were a little bit more open to a broader view of what being an orthodox woman could be maybe we would end up with a little bit more diversity in our professions just some food for thought i guess um what i want to do today is that um we are going to do like we do with every anniversary episode we are going to take a trip down memory lane i have pulled out clips from the episodes from this year and we're gonna get a chance to listen to them um I want to, I want to circle back for a second. Cause I'm curious if there was a part of you, something that just popped into my head when you, when you made the decision to go keto and to start losing weight, was there a part of you that felt like now, like you had previously been, 
I like, I can't think of any better way to say this, but you had previously been like, I'm the happy, confident fat girl. Like this is, I'm wonderful in my body and you should be here too. And come buy my beautiful big clothes, which by the way, they are beautiful. Then was there a part of you when you decided to become smaller that was like, that was concerned about that? Or that was like, so truthfully, the whole, you know, the whole reason behind becoming smaller at that time during COVID was that my sister of seven years younger than me was dating and was potentially about to get married. And I think it was like an aha moment in my brain that was like, Rahama, you're going to get left behind. Do whatever you could if you can. And I think that like I got nervous for her wedding. I remember at my brother's wedding feeling super uncomfortable. Um, my younger brother's wedding feeling super uncomfortable that people were looking at me like, she's beautiful, but she's very heavy. And, you know, so she's not married and married by you, you know, which means God willing by you. Um, I was just bugging out by his wedding and I wasn't present. I remember hiding in the room and I feel uncomfortable and I had a beautiful gown and I looked beautiful. I, my hair, my makeup, everything was done. And I remember not being present and it bothered me so much that I guess that was like the motivation behind it. And it's not like being skinny equals happiness. And I knew that because I had done the band three years before. So I, I knew what it was like to lose weight and have people look at you differently and to tell you all the time, you look so amazing. And I guess that was like the drive. Like I didn't want to feel left behind at Tina's wedding. I wanted to feel beautiful and believe me, I look beautiful at her wedding. So it, it was kind of worth it. And it's not even about, it's not even about the number on the scale or the outside. It's the way I felt about myself inside my own body. I didn't feel like people were staring. I didn't feel like pitied. I felt accomplished. I felt like I'm a boss. I own my own clothing company and I'm not a nobody because I don't have a somebody. I'm a somebody. I work hard. I'm a good person. I'm a good daughter. I'm a good aunt. And it doesn't mean that marriage equals happiness or marriage equals your sense of respect in a society. And I, I, I guess that really what stemmed like within me of just like, you got this. And like, Will I get heavy again? Maybe. I'm definitely not on a diet. I had a bagel for breakfast. Do I watch what I eat and still work out? Yeah, here and there. Am I the most determined like I was, you know, prior to my sister's wedding? No. Do I, do I like feeling, you know, that I have, I can walk into a store and buy clothes anywhere? Yeah, I do like it. Does it mean I'm always happy? No. And I think that body image and weight is a struggle that I'll probably have forever, which is probably why, even though I lost weight, I can still be in conversation with people and really relate to them. And really like, you know, I was that girl that went to camp at a size 22 and the camp teacher didn't fit me and I needed to put it around the chair at night to stretch it. I am that girl that didn't have things to wear at weddings. I am that girl that grew up and boys called me fat. I am that girl that went on dates and boys seems so disinterested because they obviously didn't know what I looked like before. This next clip is from my conversation with Ahuva Gottdiener, and she shares why she thinks we should all grow something. So if a person has access, access to the outdoors, that's sunny, then they should be growing something, even if it's just a tom- why? tomato. Why is it important to, to grow your food? It's, I think it's important to do it because it connects you to where your food comes from. You appreciate it so much more once you've grown something. And that changes your whole outlook on your food and on the world. For example, one example is people don't generally who live, at least in our area, don't like rain. 
Um, if you live in an area like that is has drought often, you appreciate when it rains, you're excited when it rains. I love watching people in California, it's raining and they're running around all excited. But like here, it's like, oh, it's another rainy day. But what people don't think about is that your food is being grown somewhere near to where you are. A significant percentage of your food. Yes, some things are coming from far away. And that same rainstorm that is ruining your day is also helping your food grow. And it's not just your plant-based food, but animal-based food, those animals eat plants and those plants need to grow. And those need rain in order to grow. I hear that. So that like that appreciation just it changes your outlook on the rain. Yay, it's raining. Maybe you won't say that. I say that. But maybe you'll just be like, okay, I understand that we need the rain. And it just it changes your outlook on life in so many ways. Um, I think it helps you appreciate the seasonality of food until you grow, you don't realize why tomatoes that are coming from a more local place taste so much better in August. They just do. Now, if you're buying tomatoes that are grown very far away from you and are just growing like in a greenhouse, they may have the same non-flavor all year round. But once you grow your own tomato, it's a different food. Also cucumbers. People are like, I don't want to grow cucumbers. We don't like cucumbers so much. Like grow a cu one cucumber plant this year and tell me after that that you don't like cucumbers because they taste totally different than the ones, because the ones that are grown in the store are grown for storage. Like they can store longer and they can transport longer, not for flavor necessarily. Does that mean that they're, that the plants are like treated differently or that the fruits are treated differently? Or is it just like the variety of the plant is hardier and more able to be stored? It's a different variety. There, things that are grown for market are generally a different variety than the ones you can grow at home. They're grown for being able to be looking uniform because when you grow things yourself, you'll notice like if you grow carrots, you'll notice that they come in all different shapes and sizes and you grow cucumbers also. So they want to be as uniform as possible and be able to last a long time in cold storage and transport well. If they get bruised when they bump next to each other in the cardboard box, that's that, then that's a problem. Um, it's good different varieties. There are different, there are so many different varieties of plants that farmers over thousands of years that we've been farming have basically do selective breeding. They're like, oh, this cucumber tastes better, so we'll breed, you know, we'll use the seeds of that one to grow the next year's plant. But, oh, this one's, if we're not breeding for taste, we're breeding for hardier and more uniform in size, then it's, it's a lot, it's very, it's pretty quick because every year is a new season. So you can, you can change, like carrots, for example, weren't all always orange. Originally, carrots were white. And then there was one that was a little more orangey. So they bred that until they got more orangey carrots. And um, so... <laughs> Just Who decided that like it. orange carrots were better though? I guess, I don't know, some farmer someplace just liked it better? There, there's a lot of different stories about that actually, because originally carrots had been white, but then they were purple and red more often. But then somebody found an orange variety, it was like a mutation and they grew that. And there's different opinions on that. Some say it was because of the Duke of Orange or something like that. So like that was became a popular patriotic thing to be eating orange carrots. I, I, the real story is... It's hard to know because this is a long time ago, mm -hmm. but now we look at like, we think other carrots, other colors of carrots are something exotic, but really carrots come in all colors. This next clip is from the episode that I did, the solo episode that I did around when the Stungle Dress first came out. And it's about some of the technical challenge that had to be overcome to create the snuggle dress, mainly around the fact that it's a knit. And what's great about listening back to these solo episodes is that in the time since then, I've patterned the fifth eight top, which is another knit piece in the collection. Um, 
And oh, just a little Easter egg for you here. When I'm talking here about uh, scheduling myself too thin, um, that's part of my pregnancy and maternity leave popping up. But we'll talk more about that later. In my personal professional life, if that makes sense, I, um, I really like the idea of experimenting with knits, of having, um, you know, of, of challenging myself to work with something that is outside of my wheelhouse, um, but, but I still wanted to learn. In the end, I didn't end up learning it. Um, I realized that I had scheduled myself too tightly. So um, I did end up hiring someone to create the pattern. And I worked really closely with them to, um, you know, make sure that it was perfect. And we ended up doing a lot more samples um, because you actually can't muslin in knits. So my usual process is that I create a pattern. As I'm creating a pattern, I create what's called a muslin. That's M-U-S-L-I-N. And what that is, is essentially a mock-up of the pattern. And a muslin is your first draft. So as I'm working on the pattern, I'm also sewing up this muslin so that I can then make it more, um, like make any adjustments and stuff like that. This is also part of why I pattern in my own size, because then I, I try it on as I, as I work and I can make sure that things, um, are coming together in the way that I intend them to and stuff like that. So as I work on those pieces, I, um, I, I muslin them up. Now, muslin is also a specific type of fabric um, and it's lightweight and it sews up easy and it's easy to write on as well. So you can make any adjustments right there. Um, you know, you can do any adjustments in fitting. You can make it right there on the fabric. Um, but muslin is a woven fabric. You can't make a knit muslin. Like it's just not a thing. Um, so you make it up in the fabric. There is no, there. you, you kind of skip that in-betweeny process. So I worked really closely with someone who is trained in knits to create the pattern for the snuggle dress. And then we made up the first sample and we were pretty close. We were like 90% there on that first sample, uh, but still some changes needed to be needed to be made. So from that first sample, we ended up doing um, three samples total to be fully, I guess, you know, to get it 100% perfect. Um, so I guess that's a goal that I didn't meet with this with this design. I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't able to take the time to really figure out and, and kind of teach myself knits. Um, I don't regret not doing that. I think that the product is better, um, ultimately. I know that my sanity is more intact uh, because I didn't push myself to do that. Um, the, the timeline on this, just because of with how crazy everything has been with shipping, which is something that we'll speak about, um, is, had, was just very tight and it would have been, it would have been very difficult for me to have, to have done that myself. Um, and I, and for me, I think it was good. It was good to let go a little bit in that way. Um, it's also just good to know that like, now I have a guy who can do patterns um, that I know I work really well with and that I know we get great results with. So that, um, you know, that is good to know. This next clip is from an episode that I did on adult friendships with two of my close friends, uh, Nahami Tenenbaum, who you probably know from Carmela Cosmetics, and Michelle Moses, who you'll hear us refer to as Frady Moses. She goes by both names. And this was a topic that I really wanted to explore, particularly with them, because they're both people who I've met in adulthood. Um, and I do think that we have like the most mature 
relationship. And part of this episode was really just trying to figure out why that is. The other times when I've had friendships that have kind of ended have been, they've kind of just naturally faded away. Like I've kind of just let them die. And usually it's like, generally it's happened because I, if you can't keep up with like being the other person's everything, I can't be someone else's everything. Like I can't be your personality. I can't be your fun. I can't be your whatever. Like I can't be your deepness. I can't be like the person who you always turn to, to take care of X, Y, and Z. It, it just becomes too draining. And those are, those are the times where I generally find for myself that they kind of like, like I, I need to let them go and kind of die their own slow, natural death. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. It's interesting as you're describing that friendship where I can't be your everything. I feel like that's kind of how my friends and I were for each other. But in high school, where like you're seeking that emotional growth and connection and you kind of fill in for each other where the other's lacking. I was always the quiet kid and I tend to gravitate toward the louder kids. And those are the ones who took care of me and spoke up for me in class. Or if I muttered a joke under my breath, they would say it out loud so the class could enjoy it. You know, like they were that for me. But then as an adult, I've evolved into like my own individual being and I don't need, I don't necessarily need that in my life anymore, you know? Right. So, and these are friends I'm still friends with. Like I still have friends from high school, but, um, we don't need each other as much as we just want to be there for each other and be each other's friends. So I still, I still cherish that what they, what we were for each other. Um, but yeah, we've still managed to maintain that friendship. I hear that. Nahami, what do you think? I think that another really important point going along the same lines is what you, you're both, you know, talking about, um, is, to realize that not everyone could be everything to you. So even if you can use different aspects of personalities and, you know, emotional, whatever love, support, whatever it is that you need, that sometimes you're going to have one friend who go to for something and another friend who is better, you know, with something else. And you, the expectations that you have from your friends, like to keep it on the down low, you know what I'm saying? Like not to expect not to over expect from your friends because then you'll just be disappointed. Whereas if you know that like, okay, like, you know, it doesn't work when I talk to so-and-so about this topic, let me talk to this other person. You know what I mean? Like it's okay that not everyone could be everything for you. Right. Yeah. And I think that also just recognizing other people's limitations yeah. is like, that's, that's called growing up. Like right. <laughs> that's, that's just called being it. an adult. In this next clip with my friend Valerie Stavnitzer, Valerie's Boutique, or now Valerie Chicago, she reflects on what drew her into a religious lifestyle. There was one thing in particular that really affected her. And like like I said, there were a lot of um, Ba'alei Chuva or people who did not grow up Orthodox and are currently Orthodox on the show this year. Um, and their perspectives are really interesting. My parents sent me to a private school in third grade, and my mom says, and I quote, that the reason she, you know, switched me into a private school is because she didn't like my personality in public school. So okay, I'm, I'm assuming private the private school, school was a Jewish private school. Yes, a Jewish private school, and it was very warm. You're not just a number. It was it was really infused with meaning and, and depth, So, and I appreciate that. But in eighth grade, I was like, mm, I'm done with this. No, 
Mm-mm. over it. I'm not living one life at school, living another life at home. We weren't practicing certain things that were like given in, at that school in the time. And I was just like, I can't have my friends over. Like, right. I don't want this. Can so I, I ask what kind of school that was? Yeah. Was it like a full-blown base Yaakov type or was no, it? No, it was not a full-blown base Yaakov type. It was actually, it's a school called Hill Torah. It's actually modern. It was very modern. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, we were, I had to wear a skirt, you know, but right. But was, I, I presume that like you weren't keeping kosher at home and that was an anomaly amongst your class and things so like it's that. Interesting though, because my parents do have a kosher kitchen. They do have separate sinks and they keep kosher at home, but they eat, you know, non-kosher outside of the house, which we right. were still doing. Like, you know, we did not right. keep Shabbat to the way, you know, that I keep it now. And, you know, that it was, it was just really confusing. Like, and right. I lived, I lived 30 minutes away from any of my friends. So it was just hard. Right. And I was just I done. I was like, I want to go to public high school. Why do I need this? Like, I was just done. So I went to public high school, but I kept in touch with two friends from, you know, the school that I went to. And they said, come to this convention with me. And I honestly came because I heard that they're cute boys. So I, like, this is a so good I, reason as any to go. I support this yeah, decision. As like this 14, 15 year old girl. Like, yeah. Hello, put on so, a cute outfit. Let's go have a great time. Yeah. And it was just confidence boost. So I, so I went there um, and I, I started hearing things, seeing things. The biggest thing for me, and I think, you know, this is the main reason I became religious and maybe it's not the best reason. Maybe, you know, everyone has their opinions, but I became religious because I saw the family life. I saw that, you know, you bless your kids at the Shabbat table. And to me, that was huge. I was raised in a very, you know, interesting environment that like kids don't come to the table, go play, you know? And it's no one's fault, but that, that was just the culture that I grew up in. And, and I felt like that's just, I don't want that. I want, I was always motherly. I wanted kids and I, I wanted to be there emotionally, be there for them. And I'm not perfect. And there are days where I'm definitely not, but I wanted to be accessible at least. And I just, I, I personally didn't have that growing up. One of the things that I'm really proud of that we got to do this year was the Mental Health Winter series that I did with Rachel Tuckman, who is a licensed mental health counselor. Um, and we we just went really deep on all sorts of different mental health topics. This episode was about depression, the clip that you're going to listen to. And in this clip, Rachel explains what the difference is between just being sad and being depressed using some of her own personal experiences. So there's like those varying degrees of sadness. And like other emotions, though, sadness usually is temporary and it fades with time, right? In this way, that's how it's different from depression because I'll be sad, you know, that my grandmother passed away, but I understand this is part of life and I'll miss her. And there may even be times at at holidays that I cry because I miss her, but I'm able to like live my life, you know, or I'm even sad, let's say about my fertility journey, let's say, and, and again, this differs, but let's say I'm sad about my fertility journey for sure. For me, like I'll speak from my own experience. I was sad during, you know, my struggle with infertility, but I didn't, I was never depressed, you know? So it was something that I thought about and it was very painful for me and I cried, but there was so much more in my life that I didn't get depressed. Thankfully, you know, I had a support system. I I had access to treatments. Like there was so much going on for me that I, I didn't sink into a depression where it's very possible that I could have, you know, but I didn't. I want to pause you right there. Yeah. So describe to me, let's, that's actually a great example. Um, and for anyone who, who doesn't know, you have three beautiful daughters, two of whom were born through assistive reproductive technologies, we'll say. Um, so, and they're all really cute, but side note. Um, so when you're going through that journey, can we kind of like 
let's compare and contrast. What was your actual experience life? You were not clinically depressed. And mm-hmm. what would that have looked like if you were clinically depressed? Let's, let's take that from two angles to kind of solidify what the difference is between someone who is sad, maybe upset, going through a hard time dealing with a lot in their life and someone who is clinically depressed. Right. So, so my sadness looked like I would go to the doctor and then when I would come out of the doctor, I would be crying hysterically. I would call my sister. I would say, it's never going to happen. I'm so sad. I have, I had, I unexplained secondary infertility. So I would say my daughter is going to be alone forever. This is horrible. I feel so bad for my husband. Like he didn't ask for this. It's not, why is my body failing? But then I would, you know, she would be there for me and she would listen and then we would hang up and I would go home and get my daughter ready for school and give her a big kiss. And I would actually feel happy because I was with her and I would feel so grateful. And my husband would give me a hug and be like, it's okay, we'll get through this. And then we would go to work and I would talk with my coworkers and I would be able to smile and laugh and I would live my life. And I had my friends and I felt like I was, it it didn't, it wasn't all encompassing for me. And, you know, so there were definitely certain times, like when I would have a failed treatment or if I would get my period, or if my daughter would ask me for a sibling that it would really hit me hard. And I would feel super, super sad. And maybe it would even ruin the rest of my day. But then the next, you know, the next day or a few hours later, I was able to function again for someone who's going through fertility treatments. It does not look like that. They may have trouble getting to appointments When the appointment is over, they may not be able to function for the rest of the day, the rest of the week. They may have serious irritability or anger, you know, and again, I had anger at times, but I would express it and then I would be able to kind of move on. But there was like this anger, there could be an anger that that like they can't get rid of or an irritability that they can't get rid of or an unexplained like that they're just like mad at everyone for no reason even you know it's like this person's trying to help me but I just can't even let them in they isolate themselves they might kind of hide I don't want anyone to see me I don't want to go anywhere I don't want to do anything I don't want to eat I don't want to sleep I don't want you know so it becomes like I said an all-encompassing that they can't function um and they can't even do what they need to do, you know? So if the doctor's like, all right, you know, you're ovulating, you guys, we got to like, you know, we're doing that super romantic time intercourse thing. Like, and you're like, I, I don't even want to, you know, then it would become, that's more of an issue, you know, where- So where- the inability to move on is the disease, essentially. Yeah. This next clip is also from that Mental Health Winter series. And here we talked about anxiety and One of the things that Rachel pointed out, which I thought was really interesting, is that anxiety can be a healthy thing. And she breaks down the differences between healthy and unhealthy anxiety. So if it's your first day of school and you're a typical teenager, you're going to feel nervous. You know, I hope I make friends. I hope I like the classes, whatever it is. But, you know, you go because, again, that's that's healthy anxiety, right? You go to school. Maybe you have a little knot in your stomach, but you get there and you smile and whatever. If you have anxiety You might have trouble sleeping the night before, have panic attacks. I'm not going to have any friends. What if nobody speaks to me? What if I don't know any of the classes? What if I get lost in in the hallway? What if I get locked in the bathroom? What if I can't find my books? What if I don't have money for lunch? What if I miss the bus? And it's this nonstop kind of like hamster wheel of freaking out about everything, right? And oh my God, like, and then what if, what if the principal kicks me out because she thinks that I'm, and you can't like stay focused and just be like, all right. I'm like nervous. It's my first day. These are normal jitters. I'm okay. So those jitters turn into this rabbit hole of, oh my God, there is a threat to me. 
I can't go. And then it might be, and I've seen this, you know, it might be hard to get your kid out the door. They don't want to get on the bus. They won't get out of the car. They won't get out of bed in the morning, you know? Um, and that's where we say, we need to talk to someone. We need to challenge these thoughts. We need to pull these things apart and say, is this really danger or is it just discomfort? In December, I introduced the world to the concept of the choose your discount sale, where you can choose between two different discount levels, one that is higher and one that is lower. And if you choose the higher discount, then your item is final sale. And if you choose the lower discount, so you're paying more, then your item is not final sale and you can still return it. Um, since then, other brands have used it and I'm so glad because I think it's such a great way of shopping. And uh, I recorded a solo app podcast episode at the time basically talking about my thoughts on sales and and all of that and it's actually a uh, it's it's an interesting listen um I think now to you know kind of go back and one of the things that I spoke about um in that episode that I'm going to play the clip for now is really like how price like how price is determined and that's the clip that you're about to listen to and what I what I found so interesting listening back to this whole episode is that I used to kind of argue with people when they would point out that my pieces were more expensive than other brands. Um, now I don't care. Like I really just accept that if you understand that what you're buying is higher quality, then you get it. Like if you get it, you get it. And if not, then you don't. And then that's fine. You know, you can go buy your fast fashion crap and I'll be here selling great clothes. And it's 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 a really interesting point of, of self-reflection. A uh, little... Uh, I guess, peanut or whatever, I don't want to say Easter egg again, for um, for podcast listeners is that I will be doing the Choose Your Discount sale again, um, probably in, probably coming up in December. So definitely keep your ears and eyes out for that. My, my product is more expensive than most other brands in this space. Definitely than most other modest brands. Um, I don't when it comes to like general plus size brands it's not I don't consider myself a plus size brand I'm an inclusive brand but either way um like I said you could be not naked for less money that's for sure and there are a couple reasons why my items cost what they do uh number one fair treatment of workers is really important to me so all of my pieces are made locally here in New York City there's a sustainable aspect to that as well um that things are not sitting on a boat thank god my things are not sitting on a boat right now um um and that there's less shipping costs and not only just costs but um time and things like that um and when I say costs I mean like carbon costs and things like that not necessarily dollar costs um and making things sustainably just costs more I don't stock a huge amount of inventory um for two reasons I don't have the space to store it and also I don't want to have a lot of inventory. I don't, there's a huge amount of waste that happens in fashion, both in the production process. When you're cutting fabric, there's a lot that gets thrown out. There are things you can do to minimize that. And I do all of the things to minimize it. Um, but there is still a certain amount of waste there that's just going to have to happen. And if you're making, you know, hundreds of garments, that's going to be, that waste is going to be much more than if you're making, you know, a single hundred garment or something like that. Um, and, and all of that just costs more. There's a cost involved there. Quality costs more. Um, there's, you know, having, I, I've never been in this for the money. I've always just been a girl who wants to make dresses. So having something that is constructed properly and that I would actually wear has always been really important to me. And frankly, I don't understand anyone who does this 
just for the money. It's too damn hard to do it just for the money. Um, like I could think of way easier ways to make the same amount of money, if not more. So yeah, there's that. Um, so that all, with all of that, you know, there's that, that costs more, um, making things in New York city, uh, costs more. And also I know that the people making my clothes are being treated properly. And that is so important to me. Um, I personally do, I, I can't walk into a store like Zara or H and M without knowing that if you're buying something for 10 bucks, you know, or Shein or Shane, however you say that, if you're buying something for that inexpensive, uh, somebody somewhere is getting seriously taken advantage of. And I don't want to have any part in that. And I certainly don't want to be producing a line, uh, under those terms. So all of that is, all of that's important to me. Um, I'd like to think it's important to you as well. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And, and I'm not apologizing. I'm really not. Um, maybe explaining, but not apologizing in any way, shape, or form, because I know that my pieces and designs are worth it. After the Choose Your Discount sale last year, we dove right back into the mental health series, and grief was a topic that Rachel actually wanted to include. I didn't really understand how it fit into a mental health kind of conversation, and in this particular clip, we're talking about communal and public tragedies and why we're just so fascinated by them. Sometimes we we look because we also want to like know the details so that in a way and it it doesn't make sense because we can't always do this but like we want to make sure that we know the details so like we can prevent it ourselves so if we know why a car accident happened oh, okay i'm not going to do that so that won't happen to me if we know why that person got sick oh okay so that that doesn't run in my family it's not going to happen to me it gives us a sense of like control okay that's not going to be my tragedy also again sometimes it's like and, and I think this is like a normal thing. Again, it, it, it sounds mean, but it's not. It's again, a very normal human reaction. Like sometimes we see someone else's suffering and we say, oh, thank God it's them and not me. Oh, thank God it's them and not me. Like that is just a normal human reaction. You know, I, I call it tragedy porn, right? Mm-hmm. That people are obsessed with looking and, and reading and watching and, and finding every last thing because again there's this draw to it and like we can't get away from it and we know a lot of the time we know like we shouldn't be like nosy and I think that's why it feels yenta-ish because we know it's like wrong to be like oh I'm just like following her to find out like what happens or whatever or we feel sometimes we feel bad about it or it's or the behavior looks kind of like yenta-ish like we're being gossipy or or just like curiously like morbidly curious but again, I think it's just like this human fear reaction that we have that we're just trying to like understand like what happened here and like how do I make sure it doesn't happen to me? This next clip is from the solo episode that I did on the All-American Dress. And I'm discussing in it really how the pandemic has changed fashion schedules and how we're, you know, as, a, as an industry trying to be a little bit more intentional. And for me, it's really always been about pieces about really good pieces that are in your closet so you know when you consider sustainability not from only an environmental lens even though that is hugely important but also just from like a creative energy and a scheduling lens it's a little bit of a different 
angle to take. Pre-pandemic, and actually there's been a lot of talk about this in the wider designer community among lots of brands at all different price points, um, that the way that things were conducted pre-pandemic were really not sustainable. And when I say sustainable, I don't just mean in terms of environmental impact. I also mean in terms of like being able to keep up with the rat race of there are some lines that did 10 or 15 collections a year 10 to 15 collections a year um which is huge <laughs> i can't overstate just how much work something like that is i mean you're talking about you know a lot of these collections especially you know the main collections there generally be about four main collections those could easily have you know, a hundred pieces in them. And then they would do these smaller collections in between and they would, you know, be doing these constant drops. And it was this, I mean, fashion in general is a rat race, but you're talking about a rat race uh, using that schedule and the environmental impact of that, especially, you know, listen, when you have a collection that has a hundred pieces in it, maybe 30, maybe are going to end up in stores are going to end up actually being worn. Um, and the rest is much more about spectacle and much more about that, you know, looking like the cool kid than it is about actually making things that people are going to wear. Um, and there is an argument to be made that to a certain extent, fashion is art and there should be room for that as, you know, fashion as an artistic expression. And I do hear it and I do, and I do think that there's room for that. But I also think that, listen, definitely from a business sustainability part, um, but also just from a, I think that clothes are meant to be worn. You know, I think that clothes are meant to be enjoyed. Um, you know, they're not meant to just sit in your closet. They're certainly not meant to just sit in a showroom somewhere. Um, and yeah, there's room for the designers to do that. But I, I fall way on the practical side of this thing. For the last episode of the mental health series that uh, we did over the winter, we spoke about stigma. And for that, my friend Alyssa Goldwater joined us because she is someone who really has dedicated her platform and her pages to breaking down stigma around mental health issues and medical issues in general. And she really felt that it was a no brainer to share her struggles around mental health. So it's, you know, you can't talk about stigma without talking about dating. And that's exactly what we do here. It seems like you had it very clearly um, boxed as like a, this is a you issue. That's something that you need to deal with. Like, right. this is something that's important to me and that, and that I'm going to be, and that I'm going to take care of. And you need to like, you need to handle your stuff on your own time. Rachel, you have been nodding this entire time. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on what Alyssa has been sharing. Yeah. I think that um, when people feel like afraid and when they judge, generally that's because like, it's triggering something in them that they feel like, how does she have the courage to talk about that? You know, I could never, usually there's that same struggle that they're identifying with, but they're so scared or it makes them face things that they don't want to face. So when they see someone, and I don't know if you ever get this, Alyssa, but you know, when they see someone talking about a topic that they're like terrified to, to even face or address themselves, they might be like, how, why could you, why are you talking about that? It's so inappropriate. And this is not the place for it. And they might like try to shut you up because they themselves like don't want to face it. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to ask themselves, like, do I struggle with this? You know? Um, I also think it's so interesting that there is, you know, stigma around Shaduchim, like you said, finding a match over 
ridiculous things like <laughs> diabetes. I have a client who has Crohn's and she's like, I could never let anyone know that I have Crohn's. I won't get a shit up. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is what we're asking now. Like, does she, did she ever get a root canal? Like, stop it. Like that literally does not impact how you will engage as a partner and what you will be like as a, as a parent and you know, who you will be in your community, like get out of town. Like we've really lost sight of what's important. And these things like get me angry because when we teach our kids, right. And parents who hold these stigmas are passing them down to their children and saying, Oh, this is what's important. Like, you know, what their insulin levels are. Like, it's the same thing, by the way, to be blaming someone for having type one diabetes and then blaming them for, you know, being open about, I was struggling and I was having a hard time and I went and got help for it. Right. It's the same thing to be blaming something like that and saying it's, it's a fault. Um, we're teaching our children that that's really what matters in a relationship. And it's like, what could not be farther from the truth? You know, like you need to be looking at the quality of a human being, their character. I think, you know, even more yeah. so they should want to marry my children because I am taking care of my mental health and my health in general. And there are so many people who unfortunately are not taking care of their mental health and then they get married. And it turns out that, it's a horrible marriage because unfortunately these people have mental illness that they just, they don't deal with. And then it comes out, you know, when they get married or when they have kids. This next clip is from a conversation I was so honored to be able to have with Elise Resch, who is one of the founders of Intuitive Eating. And it was it was a really an eye-opening conversation. And you'll hear from her again, actually, later in this episode because she uh, offered to do a Q&A session. But in this clip, we're talking about, you know, some people see intuitive eating as an excuse and being in denial. And she responds to that. I think also the fact that it is so nuanced, it's, it is kind of, you know, you have to put your big girl pants on and really think about it to, to, <laughs> to it. understand, you know what I mean? It's not something, listen, it's not something that can get, can get explained in 15 seconds. It's, it's not something that is easily reduced to a meme or, or those kinds of things. So it is often misunderstood and becomes harder to explain. And then people just either put it in this category of being another diet or people who are in denial. Oh, okay. Okay, fine. So you just don't want to put in the work. You just don't want to pay attention to what you're eating. You just don't, you just don't want to do like we've been talking about the good work of being thin, whatever that is. And, and so you're giving up and this is your excuse for giving up, which is just not true. It's just that it's complicated. Well, yeah. And the other misconception, the idea of making peace with food, um, people think, well, it means eat whatever I want in whatever quantity at whatever time. Well, yeah, you can, but you also want to bring in that awareness, as I said, the interoceptive awareness. How does my body feel? How much of this um, is giving me satisfaction? It's not a free-for-all. It's a very uh, mindful process of enjoyment and understanding that you're going to get more enjoyment if you're you know still have some hunger it, I, I equate it to um i drink very little wine but when i do drink wine if i go out to a nice restaurant i can only drink three quarters of a glass of wine my body tells me that if i go beyond three quarters of a glass i'm going to wake up in the middle of the night wide awake as i've metabolized the wine and uh, not be able to sleep well. I'll feel hungover the next day. I'm a lightweight, you know, okay. It doesn't take a lot, <laughs> Same. but I stop at three. Yeah. I stop at three quarters of a glass, even though it's, it may taste delicious and I may feel sad that I'm not drinking the whole glass, but I stop because of my self-care 
because I want to feel good. And that's what intuitive eating is about. You want to feel good. You want to have satisfaction. This next clip is with Avital Chizik Goldschmidt, who had a hell of a year. <laughs> I mean, her family has been through a lot this year, um, particularly her husband's very public and sudden firing from his uh, position as assistant rabbi at uh, the Parkey Synagogue. And there were, a, there were a lot of troubles before that actually happened. And her involvement in the rabbinic life and also, you know, her involvement as a learned woman, I guess you could say, um, was were really part of the problems um, and was definitely a, a point of contention for some time. And in this clip, she reflects on why some, why she thinks some, a certain type of person finds her so threatening. I spent last night at Cipriani's on Wall Street and the night before at Capitale for a charity dinner. Like I'm, I'm still in the game and I know, you know, I'm still wearing the five inch heels and I'm, you know, still balancing that. And I think maybe perhaps that may be part of the fear also is when you have someone who knows, okay, someone who can be comfortably, proudly feminine, however you want to describe that, and actually also have a brain. I think that combination is what scares people. That's an, in that's interesting. What do you talk, talk to me more about that? What do you mean by that? Because I think if I was sort of like this acerbic professorial you know um or like very <coughs> i don't know what the right word is like monastic or something you know type of Robinson, people it would be more comfortable right but like yeah like i i i, I can teach a torah class in louboutins you know <laughs> and and it's like that is the title totally. of a memoir right there. And it's fine. <laughs> I mean, whatever. We can talk about materialism separately, and I have a lot to say in that as well. Um, but but the point is that, like, there's something, you know, there's something, I guess, threatening in that, especially in a community where those things really matter, right? Where, where, right. where outsideness, where externalities matter a lot, where certain signs matter. Um, Edith Wharton has this great line that, um, you know, they lived in a world where of basically of like hieroglyphics where the, everything was communicated through signs and never communicated actually by word. Um, and I often think about that on the mm. Upper East Side, that's true. Um, so I, you know, I think when, when someone knows, can speak those hieroglyphics fluently, but also talk about, you know, a controversial issue or, <coughs> or just, teach Torah, as simple as that is, I think that combination is sort of like, I don't know, it's intimidating. Okay, so this next clip is with Aureli Berdugo. And I would like to say that we recorded this conversation and I edited the original episode when I was pregnant. And I am wholly and completely embarrassed by it now um, because the Rifki conducting this conversation, this interview, did not know what she did not know. I do think that at some point, like eventually, I would like to explore the whole working mom thing more. Um, right now, I'm honestly just treading water. But listening to back to this episode, I really crave the clarity this version of me had when it comes to these things. Because yes, she was dumb. But I do think that on some level that Rifki was right. 
Um, so in this clip, Aureli responds to the critique that having a nanny is having somebody else raise her kids. Plenty of people would hear, would, you know, like would hear you say that you have a full-time nanny and say that someone else is raising your kids. I'd love to hear your response to that. No one is raising my kids. I have a nanny. I don't have another mom in my house. I'm the mom. I'm the one loving them. I'm the one educating them. I'm the one transmitting my values. Um, I did have to, to reprogram things as I went to make sure that she continues to only be a nanny. It's always like a, uh, you always have to be self-aware of, of, of what's going on to be able to reassess and reassess. I think it's, it's the most important skill as a mom. And because I was able to delegate, I am now able to only work from pickup to drop off. And my nanny stays a nanny. I'm the one doing bath time. Um, she helps me. Of course, she helps me do whatever I need to do. But I, I'm the only mom to my kids. That There's just nothing there more to that. And And if you feel like, your, your nanny is doing too much or you're missing out on your kid's life, then you need to reassess because mom is, is, is you have like one shot at it. So I'm not saying that I'm perfect. It's a, it's a constant struggle and it's a constant reassessment. But again, I am a better mom because I am, I'm able to, 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 to focus more on my kids when I don't have like a million things to do on the background. I, and I also, I'm not a good person when, when my mind is cluttered, when I need to do a million things, when I need to work and clean and cook and do everything at once. And it, my, my kids don't get the best of me. This next clip with Sherry Foos, who is someone who uses storytelling in a really interesting way, um, explains a concept that she uses a lot. It's called the cult of culture. And I'm going to let her take it away. It seems to me like this cult of culture is these assumptions that we make about what the quote right answer is. Um, yeah, like what people think of as political correctness or, or something like that, that there's a, a way that we that we should be thinking. And if we're not thinking like that, then it's a it's a shameful thing that we need to be keeping to ourselves. Is that kind of a right way to go about Absolutely. thinking about it? And by the way, who is the they that decide? It's, it's, there's not like a little secret department, you know, where they keep the shades down. <laughs> we, we all tend to be, you know, either self-identified or identified by others as belonging to one or the other group when it gets down to one group or the other. But typically we are just split in a zillion pieces and kind of not encouraged to consider something on our own. Um, I think the point is well taken that there's not one monolithic right or wrong, but even that goes too far when people uh, see the need to debate, you know, things like um, do unto others or, you know, thou shalt not kill, things like, really, there's really a, a, a gray in there? I don't think so. Uh, but we have gotten to a point where we lose the ears of other people if we don't state things in the most vanilla way. And then, you know, when you take your passion out, I, I just don't know how we're going to change the world. This next clip is from a conversation I had with Anna Sherman. And in that conversation as a whole, we we honestly went through her life story and what it was like to kind of reassess some core beliefs that she had. This upcoming clip is about where she thinks some of those limiting beliefs stem from. I have been carrying around this belief for a very long time, probably since I was a little girl, um, that 
I did not have the freedom to be who I really was. I was always going to have to try and be somebody else um, or hide things about myself. And this came, this, I think I, what I, what I do believe this started out from is I was a bullied child. Um, we grew, I grew up in a neighborhood where we lived, where we were one of the only Jewish families in the neighborhood. Now it was a beautiful neighborhood and there were a lot of good things about it when we were very little. But as my sister and I started getting older, um, my parents started finding that like more and more problems were coming up with the just sort of the population that we lived amongst as wonderful as the neighborhood was and and um one of the things was that in in school I was one of the only Jewish children and for most people it wasn't a problem it more it was more just ignorance but there were the odd few who had learned just some very sort of deep-seated anti-semitic ideas so a lot of bullying started from that and um, and other things, I think just not necessarily like the Jewish being like the Jewish religion itself, but a lot of the things that just came with being Jewish, just like culturally different, um, looking, I looked, I looked different than a lot of the kids because most of the kids in my class were blonde, blue eyed, um, looking kind of backgrounds. And I was, you know, dark haired, um, you know, bushy eyebrowed kind of looking kind of kid you know um and I couldn't eat what they were eating like I couldn't I couldn't eat pork shops and I you know bacon was just never on my radar and um Christmas was not in my life and um at one point when I, I was in first grade I had a friend who we became very close friends we were little but you know she was a very good friend of mine and when she found out I was Jewish she freaked out like she had been told certain things from her family about Jews and Jews are Christ killers and really scary things. And she started um, panicking and screaming at me in the middle of class. And I was like, I'd never faced something like this in my life. I was like, I was crying. I didn't understand. Like I thought this was my friend and the teacher somehow calmed that whole thing down. But then a few weeks later I asked her again, is it a problem for you that like I'm Jewish? And, and she started, screaming and freaking out again and the teacher dealt with it by pulling me aside and telling me that um it's best from now on that I don't talk about my faith and my family's background and religion because it's clearly upsetting some of the other children this next clip is from a solo episode that I did before the Pesach busy season and in it I go through it's really just emotional honestly <laughs> um, I go through really, you know, what each order means to me and also why it was so freaking hard to give up those handwritten notes in every order. When, okay, when you place an order, every single time an order is placed, I get a notification on my phone. And every single one it's, I cannot describe what that feeling is because to me, that order is not only a step forward for the business, but to me, every order is some woman somewhere taking a moment and choosing to respect herself exactly where she is at that moment. 
And that's irrelevant, by the way, of the size that's ordered. You know, that's irrelevant of what they've chosen to order. Um, what we wear is really personal. What we put in our closet, what we put on our bodies is really personal and really transformational. And being a part of your wardrobes in that way is really meaningful. It, it really is. And see, I did not set out to be a businesswoman. I just wanted to make pretty clothes. Um, and I specifically wanted to make pretty clothes for people who dress like me. Um, and for people who feel like me, like fashion in general and that fashion in general didn't ignored the modest side of me and modest fashion ignored the size of me, like the body size of me. And again, I'm not a plus size, but I just felt like there was such a, there's such a power in taking the time to purchase something for yourself and then going and trying it on and running it by your friends or your mom or your sisters or whoever. And, and that whole, that whole process that I know I go through every time I buy something new that, you know, each, every box that goes out is, is like really the beginning of a journey in that way. And this sounds so corny, but I mean it. So whatever, we'll just be corny. Um, you're stuck with me. So that, that was all really is, was, is, remains really, really, really meaningful to me. And I wanted to express that. I still want to express that. And the way that I did that was with handwritten notes in every order. Just, just thanking you for trusting me with your wardrobe, um, for choosing my designs, for taking the time to prioritize yourself in that little way. Um, obviously there, you know, (laughs) it became impractical a while ago. I'm not sure exactly how long ago, but a, a very long time ago. Um, and it got to the point where not, well, aside from the fact that me handwriting notes was holding up orders, um, and service is so important to me that I did decide that, you know, if, if orders in my, in my opinion, if you order before the cutoff, your order ships out that day, not in my opinion, in my policy, the cutoff is usually around 3.30 every day, 3.30 PM, um, Eastern. So if you order before 3.30 PM, generally your order will ship out that day. Um, and if you know, you're after the cutoff, it'll go out the next day. We never, never sit on something more than one shipping day. So if you order Monday night, it ships out on Tuesday. Um, and that stayed true even when I was handwriting notes, by the way, I was just up really late handwriting notes so that things could go out. Um, again, not probably the best use of my time, but it was just really, really important to me. It was so important to me. Um, so I made time for it and I did it until, um, until it caught up with me, until it just became clear that, you know, it wasn't, until it became clear that I wasn't going to be able to meet, you know, that shipping deadline. And I decided that the shipping deadline is much more important. I know that the shipping deadline is much more important. And if I'm being perfectly honest, this was a lot more about my feelings than yours. Um, so I, what I actually did, and, and someone actually, uh, a couple, I think it was like two or three different, different lovely suggested this to me. Um, I hand wrote a note and then had the handwritten note printed. So you're still getting something handwritten. Um, it's just not quite as personalized. And, and that's what goes into the orders now. And I gotta say as much as, as much as I miss doing the handwritten notes, 
and I'm not saying that I'm never gonna, you know, throw one in here or there. Um, I still, I'm, I am proud of myself for recognizing that this wasn't working and changing. This next clip is from a conversation that I had with Esther Rubenstein, who actually reached out to me that she wanted to share her experience with eating disorders. And that conversation is a really, really powerful one. In this particular clip, she's talking about the eating disorder voice and how that plays into the disease. Talk to me about that, about that, you know, that you identified as the girl who looked good. I presume that towards the beginning of your, um, of, of your, of your eating disorder, you were probably getting a lot of compliments around the weight that you were losing until people realized that this was maybe a little yeah. too far, Esther, but the, like, at what point, because I mean, at a certain point, I, you would, I guess you would stop looking good and just start looking unwell. D- talk to me about that, that whole aspect of this. Um, so for me, I didn't go to treatment straight after um, I was sent home from, from seminary. I was losing weight, but I didn't look so scary yet. Um, I was home and it just got worse and worse and worse. With an eating disorder, the goal is just to lose weight and lose weight and lose weight. And you think that once you get to a certain number, you're going to be um, happy with your weight, and then you'll be, and then you'll be fine. The 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 it's called like an eating disorder voice, which is in your head, which tells you, okay, you're going to get till there, and then you're going to stop, and then it's going to be okay. But it never happens. It just it just the scale, the number on the scale keeps going lower and lower and lower, and it's very scary because. Although you are so in control, you lose control of it. People did start telling me that I look scary. Um, I definitely did. Um, How did you react to that when people said, you know, Esther, Esther, you're looking scary. This is too much. It didn't really faze me. I was like, but I still need to lose weight. So I'm going to continue. Like, And yeah, it, was, it wasn't like a... It, because it's such an inner personal thing, like what other people said to me didn't really make a difference to me. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to treat eating disorders because it's a lot within the person themselves. There's no rational rational aspect. You can, you can like have a conversation with them about it because it's not rational. The whole thing isn't rational, but it's just, yeah. This next clip is from a solo episode that I did on the little ruffle dress when that came out. And I've always wanted to work with a petty point fabric and a lot of times I'll run into trouble translating my couture training and sensibilities into a manufacturable garment and this was one of those times. But it was always in the back of my head. It was always in the back of my head because you run into this problem of making this gathered dress with ruffles that um, make sense to make on a commercial scale and that the pro- that proportionally works um, on a wide size range and is just good. You know, it was just all around good. And I kept running into that issue. And eventually I, I eventually I figured it out. It was a really long, I guess, process, I guess it was the kind of thing that I had to make a lot of bad things to get to the good thing. I had to do a lot of terrible things to until it finally clicked like oh this is how I can pattern that the way that I ended up doing it was that I segmented the the tiers on the skirt so that you don't need quite as long of a piece um when I say that I segmented the tiers I always wanted it to be a tiered skirt so that you have that extra ruffle detail around it and also so that you get more volume but um so in some parts the tier is cut in half so that 
um, like each individual tier is made of, of more than one piece so that you can get the width that you need to really gather something down. I played around with the grain line um, so that it lays on the fabric a certain way so that it could be, um, so that it could fit essentially onto the form and, and it worked, you know, eventually I figured out how to make it work and that's what became the little ruffle dress. This next clip is from a conversation with my friend Bossy Schwartz, and we spoke about transparency in the wig industry kind of as a whole and why there ends up with so many lemons, really. Um, this clip is about what she thinks of the people who end up selling those lemons. Are the wig professionals that are selling these wigs that are that people are so unhappy with, are they just delusional about their own product and skill set or is there something different happening here okay so there are two answers to this question i'm gonna go with the easier answer first because we'll close it up faster i don't believe that everyone's an expert at everything and i believe that the model of those shaitel macher salon um, type of experience has allowed for one person to be an expert. And I know that you believe in this because you are an expert at your craft and you do not claim to be an expert at every type of fashion production and manufacturing. And that is something I love about you. And it's really, really true with this craft as well. You cannot be, what do they say? A jack of all trades is a jack of, is a master of none. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually don't think that's always true, but in wigs, I think it's often true that we enter, right? Like I said, I want to be a cosmetologist. What the hell does that mean? That could mean makeup, hair, waxing, laser, I don't know, so much more. And I really had to grow up to narrow down what I wanted to do. And that's why I only sell wigs. People ask me all the time, what about this? What about that? And I say, I'm not an expert in that field. Let me refer you to someone who is. Because I really believe that when we hone our craft, we can offer someone an incomparable experience to someone who's a jack of all trades. What is and something that like people have asked you to bring in that you wouldn't bring in because it would like not make sense for you? Or not necessarily not bring in. People often ask me what they should do if their lace is not performing or on a color question or um, what kind of wigs I would compare my brand to. And I'm just like, listen, I know my product like the back of my hand. I have sat here studying it for years and hours, and I can tell you everything there is to know about a Cosmo. I will not pretend to be able to tell you that about another brand because that is so not intellectually honest. It's ridiculous. But my point is that someone who thinks that they can offer you everything really, really needs to be able to offer that. This next clip comes from an episode that I think will always be among my favorites. It is the episode that I recorded with my mom this year um, where I announced that I had given birth over the winter. And pretty much this episode is basically just me being a nervous wreck. This particular clip is about the village that it takes to raise a family and all of the unsolicited opinions that come with that. Improvising does not even begin to cover. Like we're really all just making this up as we go along. Yes and no. Because if you're lucky, if you're lucky, you have your village, which is, you know, your mother, your sister, your friends, you have a village. You're right. not completely making this up. True. Because you've seen your sisters raise their children and you've seen, you know, and you've seen your friends and it's not, I, you know, right. I think in our community, it's also even less making it up because there are babies everywhere. But that's the point also. 
That's exactly the point. There, you have your village, right? There are the people you want in your village, and then there are the people who want to be in your village, not necessarily the same people. Okay. There are people who try to move into your village. Fine, so then it's up then to you got to get say, some pitchforks out. Then it's up to you to, you know, tell them to leave, or to, you know, what's that word? When evict them. Then <laughs> <laughs> you evict them, or you ignore them. Ignore them. Right, if but you the ignore them long enough, hopefully they will just go away. They probably won't, because there's a certain type of person who will always feel the need okay. to share their wisdom, wonder, expertise, sorrow, right. whatever it is. Then you ignore is. them. Then you just keep on ignoring them. Right, and then you listen to... to your village. So, no, I wouldn't say that you've been, you know, thrown out into the woods with nothing and no one. Yes, there is no manual and don't put the, the, the pacifier and, you know, don't take, staple it to the kid and, you know, whatever it was. But... There's plenty, there is plenty of support, if you are lucky. So naturally, when you uh, announced that you gave birth, when nobody knew that you were pregnant, there are a lot of questions. Um, and 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 I did address pretty much all of them. Um, I did a, um, you know, I did a live on Instagram and I recorded it. I mean, I told people it was live on Instagram, but between you and me, podcast people, what I basically just did was prop my phone up while I recorded a solo podcast episode. Um, and I did uh, and I did publish that. And there there are a lot of reasons why I chose not to share my pregnancy. Um, and here I reiterate one that I think is particularly important that I didn't want you to be concerned. <laughs> um, for most of my pregnancy, I was able to and I wanted to continue working at, I want to say like at about 80% of my usual capacity. Um, the very last thing that I want you to be thinking about when you're considering bringing a dress into your closet that will make you feel amazing is if I order this, Rifki will have to work more and I don't want to give her more work. That's like, I want you to be thinking about you. <laughs> you know, I was taking care of me and I wanted you to be taking care of you. And I didn't want and I didn't want to put that burden on you, especially because when you share work online, you look a heck of a lot busier than you actually are. Think about it. Even if someone shares like the limit is 100 stories. Right. So 100 divided by four is 25 minutes right because each of those is 15 seconds even if I sh like fill up all of my stories from an entire day that's only 25 minutes of my day so I could theoretically work for a half an hour post all of those stories you know like in real time whatever showing whatever work that I'm doing and then go to the beach and you know a half hour work day is sounds kind of nice right so the fact that you know when you share online you look a lot busier than you actually are um it invites a lot more concern than is probably necessary in a lot of situations. And I didn't want to put that on you. Um, I didn't want that to be something that, you know, that you were thinking about. Again, I want this to be a space where you come to think about yourself. There is something so radical about being unapologetically selfish. And I wanted this. I still want this. Um, and I'm going to continue to keep this a space where we get to be unapologetically selfish, where we get to only think about ourselves and I just felt like sharing this news would take away from that um, sharing it in real time this next clip is from my conversation with Hani Finger she's a labor and delivery nurse who also runs Yoletta Academy and the Happy Birthway podcast and here she shares how having her own baby led to her consuming as much as she possibly could about birth and everything that goes with it and as I was doing my undergrad schooling I had my first baby at only 21 years old and once those two pink lines showed up on that pregnancy test, I just, I'm an information junkie. So, and there was no Google in those days. I mean, Googling this stuff 
maybe there was Google Chrome. I don't even remember. But, you know, there wasn't as much info out there as there is today. So I think I learned mostly from books. But I became a fanatic. And I, I got my hands on every book that I could. You know, I took a childbirth education course. And it just opened up this whole new world to me that I never really thought about. I actually remember growing up when I was younger, one of my friends, her mom was an OBGYN, and I think she was maybe in her residency at that point. And I went to her for um, the Sabbath, you know, where um, it's a big family time, lots of restrictions, no phone. And I remember her mom wasn't at home, and it was just like kind of gave me this negative feeling toward being a doctor in general. I, I felt bad for her. So... Um, but other than that, I never thought about childbirth and I became a fanatic. I just loved it. I loved all of the physiology. I loved learning about labor options, different, you know, considerations, and then postpartum and newborn care and lactation. Um, and like I said, I became a fanatic. This next clip is from my conversation with Rebecca Sigala, who is a boudoir photographer. And it was so enlightening and so refreshing to speak to her about the work that she does. In this clip, you'll hear her answer to people who say that boudoir photography is really just objectifying women. A lot of people could just look at, you know, sexy images of women and be like, you're just objectifying women, you know, which is something that I come across. And um, I think that, I think that when you could see the images and just think that, um, but for me, it's like such, a, the images are like such a small piece of this whole journey and self-expression and um, women embracing their sexualities for themselves. I, I think that comes through in the images. Like It's like this woman is like reclaiming her body and her power. And I am just there to like witness that and... I really do want each of my client sessions to not only show their outer beauty, but their inner beauty as well. Um, and I think that that comes from many years of experience and all of that, but also approaching it in the way that I do. Yeah. And, and I also think that there is something really like, because I know, right. That like your clients have paid you, they've taken the time They're mm -hmm. you know, they're going through this journey. They're coming to get pampered. They're having these photos taken. And then they end up with this, like, like it's something that they're doing for themselves. And like, let's stop pretending that we don't want to feel sexy. And like, especially yeah. like for religious women, like, let's stop pretending that this is something that we just like, no, I'm sorry. I'm like too modest. I'm too sneeze. Like, this is not something that I think about. Yes, you do. I'm like, we just do, we all do. So yeah. it's, and I think that like that's, we're not only, we're not only sexual beings, but we are also sexual beings. And exactly. that's something that is, is celebrated in our religion as well. This next clip is from the solo episode that I did around the launch of the sculpt dress. And in it, I really explored my relationship with fitness. It was something that I was thinking about as I was, you know, molding and, and sculpting the bow that is the feature of that dress. Um, I found this clip to be kind of entertaining. It speaks about my dream of becoming a runner. Wow, was I good at that game. And oh, I would love to play again, actually, come to think of it. If anyone knows a pickup Machanaim game, I'm there. Um, I wonder if I'm still any good. But the... Like I was really good at, at that kind of thing. And I, and I liked, you know, I always liked hiking and camp and stuff like that, but I never thought of myself as someone who exercised. I certainly did not pursue formal exercise. And at some point over high school, I became fascinating with running, like running 
was like I wanted to be a runner. They just seemed like they just seemed like people who had their life together. You know what I mean? Like people who get up early to go for a run. It was just like I don't know. There was something about that lifestyle that I wanted, I guess. I don't know. I just wanted to be a runner and I became fascinated with it. I like downloaded tracking apps and things that would tell you how fast you were going and how many miles you were doing and things like that. I would get up at 6 a.m. to do like a walk run in the morning and I would like run for a block and then walk for a block and then run for a block and then walk for a block and and all that. And for a while, I convinced myself that I actually liked it um, because then I could tell people that I was a runner. You know, I was someone who was, I run, like this is something that I am. I was, uh, you know, this makes me think of, um, when I had Tracy McCubbin on the show and she was talking about clutter and how there's, um, I forget what her exact term was, but there's like, there's clutter that we keep on for the lives we wish we'd lead. I have so many running clothes. <laughs> there's a graveyard of running skirts, the leggings, the compression tops. I mean, the, the wristbands. Oh my God. All of the running clothes. I even went to get myself like fitted for sneakers, not like fancy sneakers. They were like new balances or whatever, but like I went to the store so that they could tell me which running sneakers I should get or something. Like I got very into it for a very short amount of time. Not, it wasn't even that short. I would say it was probably like a year or so because, because I wanted to be a runner. And then eventually I did a half marathon. A friend of mine talked me into it. Um, she's a legitimate runner. <laughs> she, you know, she's someone who actually enjoys it, gets, you know, a lot of energy from it and all of that. Um, and I didn't enjoy prepping for the half marathon. I didn't enjoy, I didn't do a particularly good job of prepping for it, which is probably why the half marathon itself was an unmitigated disaster. But I, it was the kind of thing where I was like, well, you know, a friend of mine talked me into it and I was like, well, I am a runner. So runners do, runners do things. Runners go to races and this is something that I am. And in a lot of ways that half marathon was a blessing because it made me realize how much I really hated it. Like I really hated running. I really hated it. And I... And, and yeah, and like, and I've been trying to be it for so long. I did that marathon shortly after I got married. So figure it was, you know, somewhere in the range of, I don't know, like five years ago. Um, and like five years ago and like maybe like five years after I decided that like I wanted to be a runner. Um, and while I was trying to be a runner and after that half marathon, I really just stopped because I was so miserable during that like race and during the lead up to it. And then I kind of realized that, well, first of all, I don't want to be miserable anymore. And I just was like, I don't think I want, like, yes, there is something about running, about being a runner that is very appealing, but I don't think I want to run. I just don't think that this is something that is in the cards for me. And then I like, I always ended up falling back into walking. Um, I think that also the fact that this was around the time in my life when I first got married definitely played a big part um, into this. So I had one semester left of college when I got married and I moved, I stayed in the same neighborhood, but obviously moved out of my parents' house. And, um, it was like a bit of a longer walk to get to college. It was like a 20 minute walk. Um, and we only had one car. My husband took that to work. So I would walk or like, I would try to like see if one of my parents were around to give me a ride or sometimes I would take the bus, but for the most part I would walk. And I really enjoyed those walks. Like it was, it was more like, I never thought about it as exercise, but 
it was, you know, just a means to get from point A to point B, but like sometimes I would take the long way around or, you know, days when I was working, um, cause I was working part-time at that point cause I was finishing up college and days when I was working, I was walking, you know, from my house to my parents' house where my studio is. And I had never really done that before cause I'd lived in my parents' house up until that point. Um, and the truth is that like very gently through those kind of like natural changes that happened to my life, I discovered that I really loved walking. This next clip is from my conversation with Ruthie Prakacha, and it was really fun to have because we went into it knowing, like, she knew that I thought palettes were inherently dumb, <laughs> and she, um, and, and she, you know, we wanted to talk about it, and it's always fun to, uh, you know, kind of debate with a friend, especially when there aren't particularly high stakes, and um, in, he, in this particular clip, she talks about why the narrowness of having your palette done, of having, like, specific colors defined for you and that kind of thing um why she doesn't really see that as a problem i think there are a lot of people who who a little bit miss the point um it is i don't want to use the word limiting because it has kind of a negative connotation um but it is it is narrow um i would be lying if i said it wasn't um it's not supposed to be super broad because if it was then what do you need someone telling you what to do like if the answer is you can wear anything then you don't need to go to someone to tell you that um but there's also another facet to this that i think a lot of people completely miss it's an aesthetic direction um and it is aligned with you so like it's not just the color it's a much bigger picture um, and to be honest, I don't think there's a problem with specifically wearing certain colors and not looking at anything else. Um, the way I think of it is kind of like a brand, um, take Hermes orange. Everyone knows from a distance that that's Hermes, um, Louboutin red, everyone recognizes the color, Tiffany blue, everyone recognizes the color. And I think there's something absolutely fascinating about having that kind of visual identity for yourself, where from a distance, everyone knows that it is you. It's instantly recognizable. Um, and it's also like deeply connected to you, right? Because it's connected to your personality and it's not totally random. So I think there's something very, very beautiful in that. Elise Resch, who you heard a clip from earlier in this episode, was so kind enough to offer to do a question and answer session. So I collected all of your questions and asked them to her. And here she addresses processed food. Right, exactly. Um, which brings it, which brings me to my next question, which also kind of ties into what you were saying about poverty, because we see that in a lot of poorer neighborhoods, we have what we are, what they're called food deserts, where, you right. know, there's, there are some neighborhoods, I know this is especially true in New York, where there are no grocery stores, or there are no, um, there are no places where fresh food is readily available. And right. those neighborhoods tend to have higher instances of obesity, a word I know you don't uh -huh. like, um, uh -huh. obesity, high blood pressure, those kinds of things, because they're eating highly processed foods, you know, the kinds of things that don't, not, not, well, I don't want to say because they're eating highly, it's yes, generally yes. attributed to, um, yeah, exactly. it's, it's generally say. attributed to a poor diet, um, which brings me to the next question, which is, where does processed food fall into this? You know, the, the modern invention that is processed food, shouldn't we be avoiding all that crap? Oh, no, absolutely, we should not be avoiding it. And I wouldn't call it crap. 
<laughs> might call it play food. That's my name for food that isn't necessarily real high in nutrient value. But but before I answer that, I just want to say something about these neighborhoods where there are food deserts, where where people are so low in funds that all they can afford is fast food. If there happens to be a fast food restaurant around, the only way they're feeding their families is by foods that are not very high in nutrient density. Let's not judge them. Thank God they've got oh, some food not. to feed the family. Of course so I not. Just, yeah, of course I, not. I just wanted to say that. Okay, so processed foods. Well, you know, if I cook brown rice, I'm processing it. So we have to also understand what processing means. Maybe an apple off a tree is not processed, but if we're cooking, we're processing food. So it, if something is highly processed where it doesn't even resemble food anymore, you know, it's a made up food that's um, going to appeal to the, you know, to your taste buds because you haven't had it before and you want more and more. Again, habituation will take place if you have it around all the time. This next clip is from my conversation with Danielle Immerman, who is one of the co-founders of The Reflective, which is a really unique, modest marketplace. And um, her, along with her founders, um, did not grow up dressing modestly. So here she speaks about what it was like to go on that first modest shopping trip and how transitioning her style over to modest dressing really felt. I'm curious what that like first shopping trip was like. Like, did you buy a whole bunch of clothes thinking that like you might not ever even wear them? Because I would imagine that if your wardrobe is completely, if you're basically revamping how you present yourself to the world, like you're revamping your self-image in a way, um, I would imagine that would be really overwhelming. Yeah, I guess I didn't think about it so much as far as a macro kind of view on how it would impact my life. Um, I, it didn't occur to me. I just, I really was like, okay, I'm getting clothes for this next chapter in my life. Um, it didn't feel anything bigger than that at the time. I think maybe when I came back from Israel, it felt a little bit bigger because I don't know, it was just, okay, now I'm entering the world as this changed person. Um, and I'm going to be in an American environment as opposed to an Israeli environment. And the way you dress in those two different environments is different. So I'd say I did feel like a little bit more, um, I wouldn't call it pressure, but I felt more drive to acquire more clothing when I came back. This next clip is from a conversation that I had with Alex Fletcher and Rifki Silver. They are the hosts of the Deep Meaningful Conversations podcast. And the conversation as a whole is actually a really interesting take on orthodoxy. This specific clip is Alex pointing out something that I've thought about a lot since she's mentioned it. And it's uh, specifically about diversity in our community. I think it's also important that within the Orthodox community to recognize that there's tremendous diversity in the Orthodox community. And you mentioned professions. Well, for sure, there's diversity. And, you know, maybe for women, there, there are some more typical professions. But, I, um, you know, there, there are the doctors, there are the lawyers. You know, there's, there really is everyone, men and women included. There are people of various socioeconomic levels. And I find that fascinating. You know, my parents became religious when um, we moved into Orthodox community when I was 12 and something they always talked about and I found really interesting and it's never left me is, you know, when you're not, when you're not religious in the secular community, this, the neighborhood that you live on is based and the schools that you send your children to is based on your socioeconomic level. Um, you really do not 
have much to do socially with people who are not where you're holding economically. But when you join an Orthodox community, I know it's it's different when you're talking about certain niche neighborhoods in the tri-state area, you know, like everyone who lives in a secret area obviously has a certain income level if they can afford those houses. I get it. But, you know, they were talking about we lived in an out-of-town community and, you know, you're socializing and you're having Shabbos meals. You know, they would go to, you know, the rabbi's family who, you know, didn't have a dining room table and had folding table and chairs. And then they were having the next Shabbos meal with millionaires. And that that's something really to acknowledge is, is our communities are diverse economically, um, socially, you know, backgrounds, professionally. I think there's tremendous diversity. And I think, I think the challenge is how we tend to really like, we try to really like only stick with our people and our type and this minion with this type of people. Cause I think that's a real problem. (laughs) I think that we, not a real problem. It's not pressing like I'm writing an article about it, but I think we need to do more to open up our eyes and realize all of the very different types of from people in our communities and try to diversify a little bit, you know? My conversation with Aliza Horowitz that you're going to hear a clip from coming up soon was one of the funnest that I've done this year. It was just really relaxed and we we didn't have any place that we wanted to get to. So we were just allowing it to take us wherever it would. Uh, in this uh, particular clip, she shares some anxieties that she has around having a platform. Right now, I'm really conflicted. I don't know whether to go 100 miles an hour towards this. Um, I never saw myself as someone on social media. Um I'm very superstitious. So one of my big, I don't know the right word for this, but like one of the things that really disincentivizes me from social media is that because I'm so superstitious, I have a big belief that things that are hidden from the eye um, have blessing. And when you're public, you, 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 some of that blessing is retracted. And my life has been honest. I don't share a lot of like my personal life, but my life is not an easy life. And I sort of wonder sometimes, is it because I have people looking at me and looking at my husband and looking at my children to be like, yeah, look at her, look at her, look at her. And that causes like the universe to, to like I remember a teacher was telling us like, when someone talks about you, it causes like, you know, the, the heavens to be like, oh, she has that. Does she deserve that? Does she have that? Like my husband's not a believer and all this stuff, but I'm a huge believer. And some days when things go like really, really long, I'm like really wrong. I'm like, yeah, well, a few thousand people just saw this and just saw this version of my life and are probably looking at me going, oh, look at her, look at her, look how happy she is, look how funny she is, look how light she is. And maybe that is in some superstitious kind of weird, above world, worldly, above nature way, it's it's transforming, taking the blessing from my life and, and, and turning it into something. Does that sound crazy? Okay. Do I sound crazy? <laughs> you don't sound crazy. And I'll tell you why you don't sound crazy because this is a very um, particular Jewish woman brand of crazy that like, I've heard this before. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, you know, this, it's this whole thing of like, I and Hara. Now I personally think that it's all a bunch of baloney. Um, that's, that's, that's just me personally my husband okay like it's it's just not my jam um you know this is also like when people start talking about like energies and like like spirits and powers (laughs) I I have to work really hard to physically not like laugh at them or like roll my eyes or whatever (laughs) which which is my own work to do we should not be rude to people when they express these things um but it's not it's not like you came up with this idea by yourself it's not like you invented a monster it's a thing it is a thing it's it's like a jewish old wives tale thing 
This next clip is from my conversation with Dr. Amy Barron of I Was Supposed to Have a Baby. And it was, I think, one of the most eye-opening that I had this year. The entire story is just so, I mean, the whole episode is about her fertility journey and how that led to her founding I Was Supposed to Have a Baby. And it's it's a fantastic listen. And it, I, I really learned so much from it. The This particular clip, she shares something that I thought was really poignant. And it was about the disappointment of missed expectations. When you have an idea about the way your life is going to look, what your future is going to hold for you, because you see everyone else around you seemingly following that path. And you think like, yeah, it's happened for them. It's happened for them. It's going to happen for me, right? I'm going to get married at a certain age. I'm going to get, have children at a certain age. I'm going to then move out of a, you know, my first apartment and I'm going to get a house at a certain age. And I'm going to be at this point in my career at a certain age. Like we all have expectations, whether they're internally, it's in some kind of internal pressure that we feel for ourselves, or whether it's this communal pressure because we see everybody else doing it, right? You know, those expectations exist. And so when that doesn't happen, it's devastating. It's devastating. And, and then the question becomes, how do you move on and move through that, knowing that life is not handing you the things that you have wanted on a silver platter? What do you do? The next clip that you're going to hear is from the solo episode that I did when the Fifth Eight Top and Skirt came out, which is the only time that I have missed a pre-order ship date. And it was the worst feeling ever. Um, I do think that as a whole, I kind of learned that I'll be okay. <laughs> um, there was definitely, I mean, there there were definitely some uh, very small processors, a very small handful of people who canceled their orders, usually because like, because it was coming later, they were out of the country or they couldn't get it or something like that. Um, but it was definitely a good lesson for me to discover that the world will keep turning if that happens, even though it is still my worst nightmare come true. And we're hoping that it never happens again. Um, but in this production run, there was just so many things that went wrong, um, the majority of which were out of my control. And it was just one of these, you know, just one mess up after another piling up. So this clip is one of the many things that went wrong that made this just run late. This particular fabric vendor is based in Los Angeles. Um, I don't know if this has to do with COVID restrictions in LA. I'm not familiar with what the COVID restrictions in LA are. Um, what I do know is that this particular fabric vendor has a very slow warehouse. Um, it takes them a while to, like when I say it takes them a while to ship, I mean, it doesn't take a while for things to get from LA to New York, even though that does take a couple days. It takes a while for them to get, like after from when I place the order until the item is out of their warehouse, um, they're just much slower. Most, most vendors will get an item out the same day or the next day. By then, they're just, usually it'll take them maybe two days, two, three days, um, which is annoying, but whatever, it is what it is. So this, in this particular case, though, oh, the reason why I'm not sure about COVID restrictions is that they keep saying that like they're slowed down due to COVID. So I don't know if that's because of like actual COVID restrictions in Los Angeles, which I know are very different from a lot of other cities, or because they just can't get their act together and are therefore just blaming COVID. Um, but either way, 
This time I placed the fabric order with them. They're like, great, we have your order. It'll go out as soon as possible. And I'm like, fantastic. Send me tracking information once you have it. And then they never shipped it. <laughs> it just wasn't, um, it just wasn't shipped. And I wasn't, I, bleh, bleh, bleh. it just wasn't shipped. Um, and like the way that it works getting stuff started in production is that basically I go to the factory, I let them know what is coming from where and what to expect. And then once they have everything, they start. Um, so the factory told us, you know, by the way, we can't start. We don't have this fabric. So I reach out to the vendor and they're like, oh yeah, we're really backed up. It'll probably ship out today. And this was like maybe a week and a half after I had ordered, which is annoying, but like fine, not the end of the world. Um, as But I say fine, not the end of the world, but like at that point, that was a week and a half that was just wasted. It was really just down the drain. And I do build time for delays into my production schedule. Like you make room for these things, but there's only so many delays that you can have. Um, and that did eat up a significant amount of the time that I'd set aside for delays. But I'm like, okay, fine. There's always some little thing that goes wrong in production. This is the thing that went wrong. You know, we'll move on. It'll all be great. They finally get it out. They finally ship it to me. I forgot what day it was, but uh, one, it was a Monday. I'm pretty sure it was a Monday. I get a call from the factory and they say, none of your fabric arrived. And I'm thinking that doesn't make sense. This was maybe like another week and a half after it was supposed to have arrived. And they're saying we, and the factory, the factory tells me we don't have any, we don't have your fabric. We don't have any of your fabric. Um, we did get more fabric for the denim dress though. Are we supposed to be making those? And I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like that was very confusing to me. The denim for the all American dress comes from a totally different vendor. It would be strange that they would just send something randomly. Something very weird is happening. So I go and I check the chat. I check the tracking of these fabrics for the 50 top and skirt. And I see that they like arrived and were signed for and you know, they, they arrived. And I'm like, something here is very, very wrong. I'm just going to go into the factory. So I jump in the subway, I run into the factory and I see, like at first it was genuinely very confusing. Um, so fabrics come in different widths. So think about the width of the fabric as the height of the roll. Um, because the length is just like the continue, like if you order, I don't know, 500 yards, then that's the length of what's on your roll. And the width of that fabric is going to be however high that roll needs to be. So the fabric for the 58 skirt is much um, thinner than the fabric for the 58 top. So in this box that was a very tall box because the um, 58 top fabric is very tall, um, there were there were some rolls that were very tall and some rolls that were very short. So the factory told me that they didn't have any of the 58 skirt fabric and I'm thinking that doesn't make sense. And I go in and I see two things. Number one, the fabric was there. It was just in this very long box. So it was towards the bottom of the box. So they just didn't see it, which is fine. Honest mistake. That happens. Um, but there is a roll of fabric that is labeled with the name and the style number and the color of the 58 top fabric of that beautiful one by one rib knit. And it's just not it. It is a roll of denim. It's a roll of heavy duty denim. Um which is not what I ordered. This next up is from my conversation with Dr. Hayaliba Kopernik. And she thinks that the firm community is particularly susceptible to what she calls shtick, 
in the mental health community. And here she explains a little bit more. I think that, yeah, there's a lot, I think particularly in the firm community, there's a lot of people who want to help, which is wonderful. It's coming from a great place. Unfortunately, a side effect of that is that there might end up being people who get not great help and then aren't really motivated to continue um, getting anything further than that. One thing I can say on the question of why for mental health professionals are less embracing of evidence-based practice, I think has to do with, I think that as a community, we want to, we just want to move quickly through education, um, which makes sense. We want to have families. We want to support our husbands in Colel. We want, um, after Colel, we want to get jobs quickly. So people want to kind of move through their education and because, and I, I get that. And I respect that because I don't, you know, want people hanging out in universities where you learn all kinds of interesting things for so long. And I think an unfortunate side effect of that is that we have less exposure to science. We have less exposure to current trends in research. Uh, we have less exposure to um, really high quality training. So I, I see that also as that's an interesting point. I, I definitely hear that how like you because you're right, it is all like college was something that everyone just wants to do really fast. And that and yeah, I could totally see how that would have um how that would have an effect on that. This next clip is from the episode that I did with my sister, Charney Barak, around hypnobirthing and her experience um, kind of discovering all of that. And I think that as a whole, this episode is a great example of something, you know, what is life-changing for someone else might seem completely nuts to you. Um, me and her have taken very different approaches to birth. Um, and it was definitely, you know, hearing her speak about it in this way, which... It, you know, it, it was clear that this is something that has just been very helpful for her. And I know that it's something that's been helpful for a lot of people. So um, this is in this clip, she's explaining some of the principles of hypnobirthing that were particularly impactful for her. Pregnancy and birth is not something that a woman should approach in a fear based manner. Medically, there's no reason to physically, there's no reason to a woman's body, a woman's reproductive organs were literally created to do this job. And a woman who is in a coma can give birth. It's a natural phenomenon that Western medicine has decided is something to be fearful about, is something to have medical intervention for, and for a regular mainstream healthy woman healthy pregnancy there is almost no reason for most of the interventions that have become standard today now i feel like i have to say a disclaimer i am all for western medicine Anyone who knows me knows that i'm probably the least crunchy granola person you will meet in your life i can verify this thank you but this piece, for some reason, has been pushed so far, the pendulum has been pushed so far to the medical side that it just needs to come back. This next clip is from a conversation that I got to have with the artist Yaeli Vogel. And the whole conversation is really about creativity as a whole. And it's a fascinating look at the, you know, how her and I approach these things in some ways similar and in some ways different. And uh, in this clip, we go through, you know, what it means to be inspired by and how that plays into copying. 
I think it was Matisse or Picasso. One of them went to the other. They were contemporaries and they were friends. They were like almost like competitive friends. And they, but they were very, very good friends and they had a lot of mutual respect for one another. And one of them said to the other, like, you made you 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 made it good, but I'm gonna copy it and make it even better. And and the, I think it was Matisse that copied Picasso, but he did copy him, but it looks completely different. Like it's his own unique spin on it. So like, yeah, you they technically copied, but that's what I'm saying. Like if you have your own voice, you can make it your own. But I don't a lot of they don't have their own voice, unfortunately. Right. So I I think that there's the like the nuance to parse out here is that there's a big difference between somebody like basically like scanning your image and using it without your consent and like putting it on a product, let's say, and between someone taking, using your Korea Samsung as an example, saying like, oh, I like that staging. Let me, let me change up. Let me see what it looks like from this angle. Let me see what it exactly. looks like, you know, in a, right. in a different coloration or right. something like that. Right. Or if I like, if I one time followed, if I saw an artist where I follow a lot of random, you know, artists out there. And I, and I, and I get inspired, you know? So one time I love this color palette. I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm implementing this color palette. Now my painting looks nothing like hers. I happen to like her color palette. This next clip is from the solo episode that I did when the pause dress was released. And in it, I'm reflecting on my general need to pause and take a break. But definitely by the time it came around to design the pause dress, I really felt like we had settled into a routine. We knew what our days were. We knew, you know, scheduling and how things needed to work. And all of that led, gave me like some space to think, I guess you could say, some space to think about how I feel about time and how I feel about, you know, this need to feel like I'm really doing everything. And it's definitely still something that I'm still working through. And I'm sure that it's something that will come up, you know, with other things. So I called this dress the pause dress for it to be an ode to the fact that we deserve to take a break. I This was a reminder for myself as much as for anybody else. It was mo usually I'm giving, usually I name these things for myself. And it was, it, it was important to me to have a, an actual reminder to physically pause, to take a rest, to take a break, to give myself some slack wherever I could and and that's how it ended up becoming the pause dress and 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 I'm glad that it went there I really am um and and there's still a lot here that I'm sure that I will unpack with you over the next probably years <laughs> My conversation with Nurit Siegel, who is a writer and philosopher and just overall really cool person, um, is, I think, among the most enlightening that I've had because she comes from a very different kind of background and she really approaches questions from an academic perspective. And in this clip, she shares what it was like to discover firmness and orthodoxy as a radical feminist. You know, I was proud to be Jewish and all of those things. Uh, but it really, really struck a chord. I was very curious. I became very, very involved. And I was already very involved in feminist activism at the time. Um, you know, I was like a very normal college, a young college woman, but I also had this group of friends that was, you know, connected to my women's studies where, uh, not most of my friends were not, you know, radical feminists is what I'm trying to say, but I was involved in getting more involved 
in feminist uh, circles and activism and organization on campus. So when I became more and more interested in learning about Judaism, that was very, very, very painful. And uh, I did feel the more that I became interested, I felt like I was, especially as I started to become observant, I really had this feeling like I'm going over to the evil side. It's always great when I get to have repeat guests, especially when they are people who I have gotten the opportunity to become friendly with. Um, this next clip is from a second episode that I did with Sarif Kakon, the founder of Lynx. And we did this specifically around when the Lynx campaign was. And she got really deep into the logistics of how one of those huge campaigns comes together. You know, everybody sees these crowdfunding campaigns and there's like this question mark of like, how does it work? And, you know, before I started running these crowdfunding campaigns, and this is our fourth year of like a real campaign, although it's our fifth crowdfunding campaign. Anyway, um, so I thought that you sprinkle some fairy dust in somebody's head and the money starts raining in because that's what it looks like when you watch somebody's campaign and all of a sudden you're like, $18, oh my gosh, and then they got a, a $5,000 and, and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden it's like magical and then they go into this bonus round and it's like- Build it and they will come. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and then I get always these calls from people who are starting in these crowdfunding campaigns or sometimes have done unsuccessful ones. And they're like, this is so sad. Why does it work for everybody else and it doesn't work for me? So let me walk you backwards for a second. The first question is, what's a realistic goal? And there's an actual number game to this that I'm going to tell people. Basically, there is a science that in the from world, and this is a, a science that I've learned from the guru who I consider the guru in this world, which is Jesse Greenwald, who runs the platform Raise It with me. I'm not with me. He runs the platform Raise It and he helps me with my campaigns. So he's taught me basically, this is the science. He'll make me take, let's, let's for the fun of it, pull out a calculator right now because I'm not good at math and I need help. Okay. So calculator out. suppose, okay. So suppose an organization wants to raise $100,000, okay? The from world, and again, obviously it ranges and stuff like that, has an average donation of $75. Okay, okay? that's, that's now, the reason. Fair. The reason why that's an average is because obviously you're going to get the larger donations and you're going to get a lot of 18s and 36s and 54s and $5 and whatever it is. And I'm the first one to say, by the way, people, a dollar, you have no idea how far that goes. So like, don't ever think that an amount you give doesn't add up. It really, really, really does. Anyway, so now I want you to divide $100,000 divided by 75. What number are you getting? You get $1,333 and 33 people. And, and a third of a people. You basically get about a little bit over 1,300 people. Good. That means that in order for you to raise 100,000 without major miracles or massive matching or stuff like that, you're going to need to get 1,300 people to give to your campaign. Okay. 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 Now, how are you getting 1,300 people? Generally, campaigns are broken down in razor pages. That means the same way you, Rifki, have taken a razor page. Other people, thank you very much, other people take razor pages, right? Now, how many does an average person get to give to their page? That is a very big variable in different um, campaigns. There are campaigns where people get hundreds of donations, and there are campaigns where people get 10 donations. 
I like to divide it by 25. I say 25 is a good number. 25 people give to your page. So Rifty, go ahead and do 1300 divided by 25 or that 1330, whatever you got. Okay. So 1300, a little bit over 1300 people divided by 25 people per page. So the number that I got, which is 53 and a third pages that you need. Exactly. So now I know that a couple months before this campaign, I need to start recruiting 54 raisers and using this math again, obviously there's the God factor, which is huge. And every year I see it. Um, but I'm talking about the logistical efforts that need to be put in to open it up to God's miracles. Got to actually buy that lottery ticket. If you want to win the lottery ticket, right? The lottery. Right. So the same concept here is I would need to have 54 raisers who bring in an average of 25 donations Average donations of those are 75. Do the math. You're probably going to be able to hit that 100. This last clip is from my conversation that aired last week with Meg Keen. She is, you know, a best-selling author and business owner. And here are some of her reflections on out-earning her husband and how women businesses tend to be treated as hobbies. I have a cousin-in-law, basically, in England who... Um, Right, it writes like tremendously popular women's fiction there, like the kind that you pick up at the airport. Um, and she makes, you know, huge sums of money because anyone who writes like that level of bestseller makes huge sums of money. Um, but it's, you know, I've talked to her about her being treated like she basically like doesn't have a job, right? right. Um, and that her, that her, partner who's in banking like must make all the money and she like vastly out earns him and that has always been the case in our marriage or at least was until this recent pivot um where I'm sort of working things out um where I always vastly out earned I mean I started a business when my husband was still in law school right, right. so I was vastly out earning him then um and I went on to continue to like vastly out earn him I still actually out earned him if you look at gross it's just like expenses and whatever but I've always out earned him and I have always been asked like well I've always been treated like I had sort of like a hobby business that he must be supporting the hobby business oh this drives business. me nuts when we had kids suddenly what was happening was that and we both had you know demanding full-time jobs suddenly what was happening is people were like oh great so basically like are you gonna watch the kid while you work like you mm -hmm. yourself, so you won't need child care to end off this special anniversary episode i i first of all the beginning middle event and end is always thank you Thank you to everyone who has listened. Thank you to everyone who has tuned in every week. Thank you to everyone who has told their friends about the show. Um, the show has only grown because of you. And it means so much to me to know that you have a space where you can come and listen about, you know, hear about the ideas that may or may not be interesting to you and learn about people who you may or may not have otherwise discovered. And the fact that you trust me with that hour or so of your time every week is so, 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 so meaningful. If you have a spare second, if you could leave a review or rating on wherever you listen to the show, they make my day. I really do read them. And if you have a friend who might also love the show, if you could spread the word, let them know. It always is so fun to me to hear where people hear about the show. And, you know, I know that there are so many of you already who do such a great job of, of letting your friends know. And that, you know, that means a lot. I also want to take a 
a, a minute to say that if you are someone listening who is what we would consider an aguna, someone who is waiting for a get for her Jewish divorce, we have not forgotten about you. I know that I end off every episode by saying, you know, how many recalcitrant parties there are uh, listed by Ora Agunot. And we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep doing that forever. And we're going to keep doing that until it's no longer necessary. And I also would like, I know that there are people who are waiting for their get who for a lot of good reasons are not listed on that page but acknowledging that that page exists and you know tracking every week how many cases there are listed there is our way collectively of saying that we will not stand for this so thank you so much for listening if you'd like to hear any previous episode you can go back into the into the feed into wherever you're listening to this and find just the name of the person who i mentioned before the clip the be impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion the clothing line i created because i believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer see my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com access everything by swiping up on the cover art there are currently 16 people listed by ora agunot as a recalcitrant party view their names photos locations and details of their cases by visiting getora.org recalcitrant parties the episode art was designed by michelle moses original music composed by nissan fetman this episode was produced and hosted by me catch me on instagram and facebook at impact.fashion.myc as always here's to making an impact together <laughs>